Net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. If you're new and joining us for the first time, this is a call-in talk show where people can either email or call in directly with questions they have concerning God's Word, their personal life, uh, that they'd like biblical counsel on, or as it relates to their ministry in their local church or wherever they may find themselves serving the Lord. And so if you would like to call us, the number locally is uh, area code 843-525-1859, We have a toll-free number for those outside the state, and that number is a one eight seven seven. Uh, WAGP, our call letter is WAGP980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. We have an email address, and that is TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. When you uh, email us, it pops up on the screen in front of us, and we're happy to handle those questions as well. When you call, you can remain anonymous or simply dictate your question however you'd like to give it to us. Rick, as always, it's good to be here this morning for the Bible Line. It is indeed, Pastor, and I think we've already got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible Line. Yes, good morning, Carl and Rick. Good morning. Thanks for calling today. Yes, we're doing a Bible study on Revelation, and we've been looking at Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And this is about what happens during the tribulation, and it talks about the souls under the altar. Yes. And it says, are all that, our question is, are all those under the altar Jewish believers, or are there any Gentile believers? Good and question. And the other question is, are all believers martyred? If not, how do these um, Gentile believers survive the tribulation period? All right. And my question, uh, if you could just answer those, I'm going to hang up and listen. Thank you very much. That's fine. Uh, Revelation 6, verse 9, and when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony uh, which they had manifested. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer till the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. All right, good question. There is a lot of blood that unfolds during the time of the Great Tribulation. Uh, It is interesting when you look at... uh, the seal judgments as they're described in Revelation 5 and 6, 
it, they perfectly parallel what Jesus describes in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Uh, so there is a direct correlation between the two. And the Lord, of course, uh, in the Olivet Discourse, spoke of the martyrdom of, of God's people. Uh, that's a reality. Not everyone will be martyred, though, during the tribulation period in I don't think anyone can say that here in Revelation 6, uh, 9 through 11, that these are just Jewish, or for that matter, the reverse, that these are just Gentiles. The only uh, Jewish people who are basically infallible during the time of the Great Tribulation period are the 144,000 that God marks with a seal so that no man can harm them. But again, when you look at their ministry in Revelation 7, And this is why I think some assume that, well, maybe these are Jewish believers because the 144,000 don't seem to be uh, sealed as of yet. Uh, And then in Revelation 7, he speaks of this great multitude, obviously, of Gentiles, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. I think what you have to look at very carefully is parallel in your study of Revelation 6 the seal judgments with what takes place in the Olivet Discourse. And you're going to see that what John does, and it's very typical in a Jewish style of writing, is they will unfold and outline the events that are going to come, and then they'll back off, step back, and then describe how they happen. Moses does that, the apostles do it on occasion, and John does it throughout the Revelation. So um, the seal judgments... As you read them, you're going to discover that then he's going to describe them in further detail, and they're going to unfold in the uh, coming chapters. So you've got your, you know, your sealed trumpet and then ultimately your bold judgments. So with that said, um, very clearly, the martyrdom is not just Jewish during the tribulation, but Jew and Gentile alike. Uh, when you come to the end of the revelation, and I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their head. And they came to life and ruled and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So it comes down to, am I going to apostatize from the Christian faith or not? Those who re- renounce Jesus as Lord and give allegiance to Antichrist will find themselves martyred. martyred. Will all be martyred? Clearly not from the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Jesus said, listen, unless those days had been cut short, no flesh would survive. The fact is, is that the days were cut short. God didn't allow the tribulation to go on forever. And that all Christians are not martyred is also very clear from the Olivet Discourse, as well as what you're going to read in the book of Revelation. Uh, In Matthew 24, Jesus speaks of his return, that it will come like a a thief in the night. And then he says, uh, two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Of course, Hal Lindsey is the only guy I ever heard of in uh, the course of uh, the last century that said that this was a reference to the rapture. But because he wrote some books that were very, very popular, largely because they're dramatic, and that kind of um, uh, you know fodder really sells books, uh, he said this was a reference to the rapture. No, it's not. It's, this is a reference to what happens when Jesus comes back. 
Some will be carried away in judgment. Others will be left to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. And again, that all Christians do not die. All tribulation saints, Jew and Gentile alike, do not die during the tribulation becomes very apparent from what then happens in Revelation 20. Because he describes the devil being bound for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, he's loosed. And when he is loose, the Bible says when he's released from his prison, he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So it's impossible to say that all uh, believers or tribulation saints, which is a mixed multitude of Jews plus Gentiles, and the Gentiles represent all the nations of the world, every tribe, tongue, and nation, which is a reminder to me that what we have not done in 2,000 years will be accomplished during the tribulation period. The gospel will go to the ends of the earth during the tribulation period. People often say, oh, you know, the second coming of Christ is so close, and, you know, the Bible's being translated into so many different languages, and there are so many different people groups that are being reached with the proclamation of the gospel. And Jesus said, when this gospel goes to the ends of the earth, then the end will come. Well, that's true. But the gospel is going to go to the end of the earth. The Bible is very clear during the time of the great tribulation period. That's not to say that we have not made dramatic uh, steps towards that, but it will ultimately be accomplished during the great tribulation period. And again, you just follow the chronology carefully of Matthew twenty four twenty five, and you put it up against what begins in Revelation 6, and you see how the two will will dovetail. So if, uh, if everyone was slaughtered at the end of, by the end of the tribulation period, then Jesus' statement, one will be taken, one will be left, make no sen- makes no sense at all. And nor does it make any sense for Satan at the end of the thousand years to be able to tempt people. What ends up happening is there are people who survive the tribulation period who are left at the return of Christ because they're believers. They're not carried away in judgment. And they enter into a new world where the curse is lifted off of the creation Uh, The lifespan of man is prolonged, much like before the days of the flood. People will have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and their children and grandchildren will have to make a decision. Uh, They will have to decide for Christ. So it won't be the tribulation saints who will renounce Christ at the end because, again, the security of the believer is plainly told in Scripture. But their children and grandchildren, even with Christ here upon the earth, won't all make uh, decisions to embrace him as Lord. Their obedience will be feigned, as it is in many times and places even today. So at the end of that thousand years, Satan can tempt some of the uh, children born during the millennium, and he will, and uh, he will convince them to go against God's Messiah, and their end will be the same as the evil ones. Uh, so that's kind of a quick scan, but I hope it helps. Let's go to the next question. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at wagp, as this next listener Rick, has. Rick, before you read that, yes. you know, um, we're going to, God willing, later this year, go to the very location that I just referenced from Revelation 20. And uh, we're going to stand on some of these places, and um, uh, we're going to Israel. 
and it's going to be a very, very exciting time. So I want to play a brief spot that lets people know what's going to happen. Go ahead and run that right now. Pastor Brogy. I understand that Search the Scriptures is taking a trip this year, September 3rd through September 15th, to Israel. What's the purpose of the trip? Well, Grant, I'm really excited that STS is headed to Israel, to the Holy Land. As always, it's a wonderful experience for people to walk in those very places where Christ walked and to put visuals to many of the places that they read in the Word of God. And so the purpose is really twofold. One, to broaden, deepen our understanding of Scripture— but also to apply it to our lives that we might become more Christ-like. So what are you expecting to see? Uh, What sites are you planning to visit during the trip? Well, usually when you go to Israel, there's some non-negotiables that you have to see. We're going to go to such places as Mount Carmel, or Mount Carmel as some refer to it, Nazareth, Cana, the Sea of Galilee. We'll be at Capernaum. We uh, will take a trip to the Mount of Beatitudes, We'll go to Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were uncovered, and consider the importance of that. We'll go to Masada, the Western Wall, the Garden Tomb, the Upper Room, the Mount of Olives, the Pool of Bethesda. Uh, We'll make a half-day trip to the Holocaust Museum. And one special aspect of our trip that very often people don't always get to see is we're going to go to Petra. Petra is a very significant place in the Old Testament, and it's significant prophetically as God sets the stage for the return of his son from heaven. So we're going to spend a day there during uh, this 13-day journey. Now, I also understand that you're offering something very unique uh, in your itinerary, a free day. We are. You know, um, one of the things that I've noticed often on trips to Israel is that people have said, "I, I wish I just had a little more time. The schedule is so packed from day to day. I wish I had just a little more time to, you know, at my own leisure to peruse, to shop, to maybe visit some spots that we went to. And so we've made the trip a a day longer for that very purpose, to make the schedule a little bit more relaxed and to give people a chance to explore some of the places that they want to go back to on their own. Great. On On a personal level, what are you most excited about in leading this trip to Israel? Well, you know, every time I go to Israel, what is so fun is to see how people are excited to search the scriptures even further. Uh, It's motivating. It's motivating when you can put together geographically uh, in your mind some of the places that you read about in scripture. And it's life changing for many people. It's a it's a time of uh, not just vacation and a time to visit these sites, but it's really it's a, it's a sp- spiritual pilgrimage to gather, and many people grow and deepen in their walk with Christ because of it. I know a lot of people are probably thinking, I would love to go, but you also have to consider the cost. So what is the cost, and then if they uh, can afford it, how do they sign up? Well, uh, as you know, Grant, we're heard from Maine to Florida on a number of different radio outlets. And so we're going to have two launching places, one from Philadelphia and one from Savannah. And the whole group will meet together in Tel Aviv. And from there, we will tour Israel and Petra there in Jordan. If uh, you're leaving from Philadelphia, the cost is $4,400. If you're leaving from Savannah, Georgia, the cost is $4,590. That includes everything. Uh, your airfare, your meals, all the taxes, tips, fees, the visas, gratuities, everything. 
uh, if if that's all you had and didn't carry 10 cents in your pocket, you would be fine. But that's the full cost of the trip. And for those who are interested in signing up, they can go to our website at searchthescriptures.org, all one word, searchthescriptures.org. There's an application there where you can apply uh, and make your deposit and commit. The trip is limited in size and number. So if you're interested, I encourage you to go ahead and and sign up soon. Or if you'd like to personally uh, find out more through conversation, you can call Grant Castleberry at area code 843-525-0089. Well, we're going to stand in the very spot where the Battle of Armageddon will take place. And it's a future battle that takes place at the end of the seven-year tribulation period and a lot of other places where you'll be able to put your eyes to uh, areas that are you often read about in the Bible. So again, uh, go to our website, just newly renovated, searchthescriptures.org. If you haven't been there lately, you won't believe the difference, uh, the, uh, the opportunities to... Uh, take part with some of the resources that we have available there. All right, let's go to our next question, 525-1859. If you have a question, toll-free at 877-WAGP-980. All right, and a listener writes, a Christian man with a heart full of love for God and motivation to please him is in a great relationship with a wonderful woman. A son was given to the family 21 months ago, and that blessing has been the most heart-changing event in his life, with the exception of the moment he let uh, Christ into his life. He has a desire to get a Bachelor of Science in Psychology slash Christian Counseling. During preparation, he's given thought to a future pastoral position. Prior to becoming a Christian, the individual went through a marriage and divorce with no children as well as a few other relationships. One of these relationships, or the breaking off of the relationship, was the devastation that led him to accepting Christ and never looking back. With the divorce in this man's life, Prior to becoming a Christian, is this man unable to become a pastor while remaining biblically obedient? It's a good question. It's a fair question. And uh, to give you the quick answer, the answer is no, you can't be a pastor because you will not be able to fit the qualifications underscored in 1 Timothy 3, a one-woman man, the husband of one wife. Now, I know that phrase has been interpreted in different ways through the course of uh, the last hundred years, especially, uh, almost the undisputed uh, position of the church fathers and all the way until the time of the Reformation was that this was a prohibition against a divorced person serving in the office of pastorate. It's not that God is against divorced people. He's not. They can serve in any capacity in God's kingdom except as an elder or a deacon because they don't meet the qualification of a one man, woman, or the husband of one wife. During the Reformation, uh, there was a few people who took a different slant on it, and they said, well, what he means by the husband of one wife is one wife at a time. That is a prohibition against bigamy or polygamy. Uh, I don't think so. Um, Number one, that was against Roman law as it was in the first century. It was uh, prohibited to have more than one wife as it has been in our country. And we had to underscore that. It was a given when our country started, but when the Mormons, with their open marriage, so to speak, and polygamous ways, uh, began to advocate a man having numerous wives, uh, the government had to specifically prohibit that. 
uh, but it was against the law in Roman uh, culture as it is here. It was never good for society. It's no good uh, for society today. So it's not a prohibition against uh, polygamy or bigamy. It's uh, it's a prohibition against someone who's been divorced. And again, the reason is because God hates divorce. He doesn't hate divorced people. He's trying to model in the church leaders who must have certain qualifications set in their life. And if they don't, and there's 21 that are given, by the way, as it relates to the office of elder or pastor. Uh, sometimes the only question people ask is, has he been married before? Uh, where there are many other issues, sometimes even done before we became Christians, that can disqualify us from serving in that office. Again, it's because God's trying to model the ideal. But let me say this, that um, the fact that God's put it in your heart to uh, do something and to serve him directly uh, don't dismiss that just because you cannot serve as a pastor. There are many other uh, avenues in which you could serve. You might serve on the church on a church staff somewhere as a Christian counselor. If you pursue this counseling degree, you might be a missionary. You might do all kinds of different things. I uh, just can't be a, a pastor of a local assembly. And and you're taking that like a man. And um, and when people say to you sometimes, uh, what, what, you ought to be a pastor, you know, you can tell them, well, this is what God's word says. And what you end up doing is you end up highlighting the sanctity of marriage and the permanency of marriage as God desires it to, uh, to be. So good question. Let's go to the next one. We have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. My question is about sanctification and I feel that sanctification, like in the Old Testament, say, when they were sanctifying the articles of the tabernacle, that Moses was doing that according to God's instruction. But when I think of sanctification as referring to us in New Testament times after our salvation, that I look at sanctification as a process, the entire sanctification wouldn't ever be attained here on this earth, but only after we received our eternal bodies and were in heaven united with Christ. Am I right or wrong in looking at it that way? Well, you're partially right, and and, and it may be that if you spoke a little bit further, I'd say you're totally right, uh, because you're just giving me a soundbite. But let, let me just respond, and then you can come back if you'd like. There are three tenses of sanctification as described in the New Testament. Uh, there's past, there's present, and there's future. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 9, Paul says, You do not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says, In such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So there's a past tense to the use of sanctification, something that was done in the past. It's a completed action, the way it's described in the Greek, with continuing implications into the present. So there are different aspects of sanctification. The word sanctified, of course, as you know, simply means to be set apart something that is set apart for a specific purpose. 
And there are people who are set apart in the Old Testament. Sometimes there are objects and things like in the tabernacle and later the temple that are anointed with oil and set apart for a special purpose. Well, God has set his people apart when he justifies us, declares us righteous. He sets us apart as hagios or hagaioi, literally plural, holy ones. We are holy ones in God's sight. So there's a past sense to sanctification that speaks of my position in God's eyes. I'm set apart as holy. Why? Because when God justified me, he credited to my account the righteousness of Christ. There's a present aspect to sanctification. So for instance, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the apostle is um, writes to the church at Thessalonica, and he says in verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. There it's a present tense. Well, wait a minute. I thought I've already been sanctified. I have positionally. Now he's speaking of practice. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who transgress and defraud his brother. So while I am set apart as holy, God wants that holiness to be expressed in my everyday life. Uh, And so I am to lead and live a set-apart life, a holy life unto the Lord. You are to be holy because he is holy. But then you're absolutely correct. There is a future dimension. And so, no, we will not be totally sanctified in this life. Now, there have been some people, not in terms of practice, there, there are some people who say, well, you know, I no longer sin. And, uh, I, you know, God has done this, such this deep work in my life. I, I no longer sin. And I'd say, give me half an hour with you. We'll see if you don't sin anymore. Uh, everybody still sins. Uh, we all stumble in many ways, the Apostle James says. Uh, the Apostle John says the one who says he doesn't sin, he, he's a liar, and he's making God out to be a liar. Why? Because from Genesis to Revelation, God says we sin. Here's a future aspect of sanctification. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus. That's the future dimension of sanctification. It's out there. It hasn't happened yet. Paul is, uh, you know, expressing this desire for that that is a reality that is going to happen. In another passage, he says, listen, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So when God justifies me, I am saved from the penalty and punishment of sin, which allows me to have a state where I am fully sanctified or set apart as holy in God's sight. And that's why in the New Testament, every child of God is called a saint Even the worst of Christians are called saints because God has positionally set us apart as holy. My growth process as I become holy in my experience, it doesn't speak of my position, but of my uh, practice uh, is something that is to be ongoing. In future, sanctification would parallel glorification. 
uh, where I'm set apart for all of eternity. It happens when God gives me a glorified body. So I hope that helps. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. All right. Good question. Especially, I'd looked at that verse in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Yes. And the one that caught me was that verse 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. That's right. So to me, that was like, okay, that that's where our culpability comes in. Absolutely. Our salvation is totally through the grace of the Lord through Jesus Christ, but then there's a process that we are to participate in from that point on. Well, that's right. You know, sanctification is not automatic. There are choices that we make to, uh, in terms of the present aspect of sanctification. Uh, when, when we believe in Christ, our sanctification is automatic in that respect, and that God declares us righteous. Uh, and if he's declared us righteous in the past, then he guarantees we will be uh, set apart or sanctified entirely in the future because all who have been justified uh, will, in essence, experientially as well as positionally as we already are, be glorified. But there is a present dimension that we can slow down and we can make choices and uh, we play a role in this process of sanctification. And so there are hundreds of commands in the New Testament given to God's people and decisions that we are to make and how we are to respond, that we don't walk as the Gentiles, but we, we walk in a, in a new walk that God has called us to. But great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. I think we have someone else waiting, maybe. We do indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Thank you. I know you've addressed this topic before, Pastor, but I continue to have a a difficult time reconciling the concept of free choice and the idea that through God's sovereign will, he has elected certain individuals since the foundation of the earth to be his. Can you restate what you believe about those two seemingly irreconcilable differences? You know, people approach this in, in, in different ways. Um, you know, uh, J.I. Packer wrote a book in the 1970s I read as a new Christian called Evangelism, the Sovereignty of God. And, and uh, his basic premise was, well, you know, God uh, elects people, and because he elects people, this becomes the basis for us to win people to Christ, because Some would think there's a dichotomy between, well, sovereign election and evangelism, and there's not. Uh, God has elected people from eternity past, but it doesn't change our responsibility in terms of evangelism. And every camp, I think, would affirm that. Uh, They would, not every camp, however, would look at it the same way as J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer, of course, is an elderly man now in his late 80s. He, He wrote probably his most famous book, Knowing God, He's a five-point Calvinist. He, he believes in all five points of Calvinism as it relates to the doctrine of soteriology, probably the most controversial being the doctrine of limited atonement. But let's talk just for a moment about uh, election. You cannot really truly say that you're a biblical Christian if you don't believe in the doctrine of election, because the Bible teaches it. it. It teaches that God elects people. And I do think there's a distinction between the doctrine of election and predestination. Very often people come in and they, uh, they call uh, the Bible line and they say, well, do you believe in the doctrine of predestination? 
And what they're really typically asking is, do you believe in the doctrine of election? Because there's a distinction between the two. Uh, God elects us. And then once we, uh, in time and space, respond to his wooing, loving work in our life, he predestines us to become conformed to the image of his son. So predestination really looks at the outcome of election, of God conforming us to the image of his son in this life and ultimately when we are glorified. So every Christian has to say in some sense they they believe in the doctrine of election because it says, for instance, in Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him. Uh, the King James says elected us. The Greek word is elect. Uh, it's, it's the verbal form for election. And he elected us. You could paraphrase it in him before the foundation of the world. And God's choosing of us was that we not might live a life of license, but that we might live a life of holiness, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. So the doctrine of election is a biblical doctrine, and sometimes uh, people will say, well, then man doesn't have a free will. And it is true, as you referenced in your question, that the book of Revelation in three different occasions notes the fact that God recorded in his book all who would be saved even before he created and made the earth. And some would say, well, see, man has no say in it. He has no choice in it. Well, listen, God is omniscient. If God didn't know everyone who is going to be saved, then God wouldn't be God. One aspect of, of, of God's deity is that he's all-knowing, as he's all-present, as he's all-powerful. God didn't know in eternity past who would be saved. God didn't know that man was going to fall. I mean, do you think God created the world and then Adam and Eve fell and God, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. Oh, man. I goofed on this creation. No, God knew it all. Even in his heart and mind, the revelation says that Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world. But God's omniscience doesn't change his uh, His creation of us as free moral agents. So God elected us, I believe, on the basis of his foreknowledge. Now, I am going to be preaching the book of Romans, God willing, in 2012. I'll be starting it sometime probably in March. And I will come to Romans 9, 10, and 11, and I will detail each and every phrase and verse. Uh, Calvin read it through a lens that forced him to come to some of the conclusions that he came to. Calvin read it through the lens of amillennialism. Calvin read it through the lens that God was done with the Jew, that um, national Israel, because he believed the covenants uh, the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant that God made was conditional in nature. Certainly there are aspects of various covenants that God made with the nation of Israel that were indeed uh, conditional in nature. The Mosaic covenant had conditional promises to it, as did the Davidic covenant and others. But the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional in nature. Calvin didn't see that. And so because of that, because he believed that God was done with the Jew as a people, that the church had supplanted Israel and now had become the new Israel. 
And so when he looked at Romans 9, 10, and 11, he looked at it through that lens. And it's very easy to do that. It's very easy to allow the setting, either um, the events that are taking place in your own life or uh, the way you've been raised to um, cause you to look at a passage of Scripture, not in, in its original historical grammatical context, but through the lens in which you're living. So Calvin, for instance, um, he uh, interpreted a passage I've already referenced this morning about the husband of one wife as a prohibition against polygamy. He said, oh, yeah, one wife at a time. That's what Paul is advocating, that you, you can't have more than one wife and be considered to be a pastor. Listen, if you had more than one wife, you wouldn't be considered even to be a Christian, much less whether you're a candidate to be a pastor. That's absolutely ridiculous and foreign to any of the historical interpretations through the church fathers, through John Chrysostom, even St. Augustine. Uh, Where Calvin got that is beyond me. Uh, But there was probably something in his culture that influenced him in that way. And remember, Calvin is uh, ultimately uh, ingrained in Roman Catholicism. And the Roman Catholic Church was the the group of people that said, we're the new Israel. Uh, The one true church is the Roman Catholic Church. All of God's plans and dealings with men are through Roman Catholicism. Um, and so they saw the Jew as as something uh, in the past, and God was no longer going to deal with them. And of course, Calvin's growing up as a Catholic, you know, preparing ultimately for ministry in the Catholic Church, and he realizes, hey, there's a lot of inconsistency between what I'm reading in the Bible with uh, what I am seeing in the established church. And so he saw the church teaching a righteousness that was earned or achieved, and in some cases through the indulgence process, confirming Luther's conclusion that could be bought. He thought that that's just wrong. That's a distortion of the grace of God. And so he he said, no, that that's an error. And he made some, you know, valuable decisions, but other decisions that he made. Who who were the first people to interpret Romans 9, 10, and 11 through the lens of amillennialism that God was done with the Jew? I'll tell you who they were. You can read their ancient commentaries. It was the Roman Catholic Church. So that's what he grew in. And so, so much of his theology was influenced by Roman Catholicism. He just put a different spin on it. He said, well, the church is not the Roman Catholic Church, but it's really, truly born-again people. And Calvin argued incorrectly that you could be a member even in the clergy, even the pope. Calvin and Luther used to love to call the pope the Antichrist. Um, you know, that you could even be the Pope of Rome and be lost and on your way to an eternity without God. And he was right in that. That's all possible. There are lost clergy and there have been lost popes throughout the ages, and God alone knows which ones knew him and which ones didn't. But he recognized that the true church was made up of those who were born again. But he kept and retained a lot of Catholicism. He said, well, the, the new Israel is not the Roman Catholic Church which, by the way, is still a claim they make to this day. They teach that salvation only comes through the Roman Catholic Church, that you can only be saved through the church. Now, they would say that there are other religions in the world that in their ignorance will be saved through Catholicism, but nonetheless, they are still the one true people of God. 
Um, now, they would say, I'm in big trouble because I was a former Roman Catholic, have since renounced Catholicism as false in terms of its doctrine of soteriology, their doctrine of salvation. And so having renounced it, they would say I would be lost forever. Well, that's okay. It doesn't bother me what they say. But um, Calvin adopted a Catholic view. He said, we're the new Israel. Um, his spin on baptism. He just took infant baptism, but retained a lot of Catholic theology in his infant baptism. In terms of what happened for him, it wasn't an ordinance, it was a sacrament. There was something that happened in the waters of baptism for Calvin. Now, he didn't invest in it the same theology that Roman Catholics do, that as the Baltimore Catechism says, uh, baptism is the sacrament that washes away original sin and instills salvation to your soul. But still, he held a sacramental view of baptism, his doctrine of end times. It was very much um, Roman Catholic. Again, uh, he didn't view as a literal coming tribulation period. He didn't see a a, a literal... um, Antichrist with a worldwide government. He didn't view uh, a coming battle of Armageddon. Um, He he spiritualized uh, his eschatology in so many ways. About the only thing I can agree with John Calvin on in terms of his eschatology is Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And he's going to raise the righteous to a resurrection of life. And he's going to raise the unrighteous to a resurrection of eternal judgment. And those are important things that we can find common ground on. And I love John Calvin for that. But he wrote a commentary in every book of the Bible but Revelation, and largely because he didn't know what to do it. He couldn't be consistent in his hermeneutic, that is, in the principle of interpreting God's Word, uh, and interpret Revelation as he did the rest of the Bible. Because Jesus Christ literally, actually fulfilled all of the prophecies concerning the first coming of his first coming into the world, why would he fulfill any of the prophecies concerning the second coming any differently? I mean, when the Old Testament prophet, Zechariah 14, when, when, when the prophet Zechariah makes this statement concerning Messiah, a day is coming when uh, he speaks of a divided Jerusalem, and then he goes on, and he says, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. This, by the way, is a future event. It's never taken place as described here where the Mount of Olives literally is split in two. Some would say, well, yeah, he was here before and he stood on the Mount of Olives. That's not what this is speaking about. You, you go on and he, he speaks about how the, the mountain is going to be literally split like an earthquake in the middle from east to west and a valley is going to be created. And uh, that's never happened. That is a literal prophecy of scripture that Messiah is going to fulfill in the future. So Calvin's eschatology was more Roman Catholic, and his uh, principle for interpreting God's word was was weak in some areas. Again, I'm not saying I would have done much better had I been entrenched in Roman Catholicism. I thank God he, he brought the gospel, but, you know, he took a lot of the Old Testament law and uh, applied it to how Geneva should be run. And he, he basically had tried to institute a, what would parallel the theocracy of the Old Testament. So, you know, you got somebody who's her, her, heretical. Let, let's kill him. Let's just kill him. And that's what Calvin did. 
you know, and uh, I'm sure he had a lot to apologize for when he got to have him. We'll meet John Calvin and Halvin. Uh, but I, I think he, uh, he was wrong on some areas. So foreknowledge is the basis by which God does his choosing. And people like to, you know, play mental gymnastics with foreknowledge. Um, it's prognosco. And when I preach through Romans, I will see and illustrate for our listeners, God willing, the various usages of foreknowledge, prognosco in the New Testament. And there are passages that are undisputable, even for Calvin where the word proganosco in those verses just means prior knowledge, God's prior knowledge. Uh, Based on the prior knowledge of God, he chose us, is what Peter affirms in his second letter. And I believe that with all my heart. So man is free. Um, but it, and man is dead, and 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 I'm saying, in in man being free, I'm rejecting Arminian theology. But today, unless you, you know, ascribe to all, sometimes even five points of Calvinism, you're viewed as Arminian. And listen, that that's just, uh, I just think that's wrong. And there's a resurgence of Reformed theology in our day. It goes through ups and downs. It's certainly not the minor, majority view in the body of Christ today. It's still a minority view, but it's resurged here in the States. And uh, I differ with it. And there are aspects of it I totally agree with. It's like the word charismatic. Uh, if you asked me if I was a charismatic Christian, I'd say yes. And by that, I mean gifts are given. Gifts were given to the body of Christ, uh, but the word was robbed uh, by a group of Christians in the 1960s and redefined to represent only those who believed in uh, certain outward manifestations of charismatic theology. Uh, if you asked me if I was a Reformed Christian, well, yes, uh, in that I believe that the Bible alone is my final authority, and that I believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, and ultimately all to the glory of God alone, and on all the non-negotiable truths of the faith that make a person a genuine Christian, uh, which were highlighted and underscored during the Reformation. Yes, I am a Reformed Christian. But am I a Reformed Christian like John Calvin, who spoke with great disdain concerning the Jewish people? I mean, just write John Calvin and quotes about the Jews, and it will make you sick. Uh, Do the same with Martin Luther. Those guys had a lot to apologize for. I know they think they, at the time, were, you know, lifting the Lord up. But look, we all make mistakes, myself included. And uh, the the only advantage I have is a little more church history on my side and a broader avenue of resources uh, historically that some of those guys didn't have that help inform my theology and balance it through uh, what men of God throughout the history of the church have taught. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, very good. We're listening to the Bible line this morning, and our next uh, caller has a follow-up to the one about the uh, wife as a qualification for, uh, or rather, a divorced man as uh, being a qualification for elder or deacon. Biblically speaking, he wants to know, what is the difference between a man who has had many relationships with women, uh, but and I'm assuming biblically speaking, right. but these relationships were before he was married. Does having relationships with women before you are married count? as marriages? Uh, no, they don't. Uh, again, there's what constitutes a marriage is what you're really asking. What const- Does sex constitute a marriage? 
because Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 of someone becoming one flesh. Uh, you know, he, he speaks, uh, or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So a marriage is not constituted via sex. Now, that may be the sealing of a covenant, but it's not what constitutes a marriage. What constitutes a marriage is a public declaration that we are husband and wife. Now, there have been different ways and different means by which that has been expressed uh, throughout the history of the world. And where there's a formal ceremony where people come together, they invite their friends, and they publicly declare to all that we are now covenanting with God to live as husband and wife. Listen, even in most states, there are, South Carolina included, uh, there is a form of marriage that ultimately after X number of years, your relationship is considered as a marriage. If two people live together, they've never been to a clerk of courts where they've signed a marriage license. They've never been to a preacher and stood before him and said, um, you know, we're committing ourselves as husband and wife. But they live together and they say they are husband and wife. They declare to people, we are a husband and wife, and they live in that. In this state, after five years of saying that, you're considered married, and it's called a civil marriage. And when that happens and you decide you want to split up, then you have to go through the vehicle of divorce. So, again, um, what makes a marriage a marriage? It's not just having sex with a woman. It's a public covenant. Uh, before your friends and others that you have committed to live as husband and wife. Sex will seal that covenant, but it's not what makes the covenant. It's the public declaration. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, Dan, a listener in Bluffton, uh, wrote, In thinking about the proposed casino in Hardyville, I have a question about investing. Is investing in stocks or mutual funds gambling? They carry a risk of loss, don't they? Is that being a good steward of God's money? If you risk losing your money, um, then they are no different than going to a casino. However, in Matthew, the parable of the talents, the master rewards the servant who invested his money. I know your chance of an increase is better with traditional investments because casinos have the advantage. But is it right to take a chance of loss with the money God has entrusted to me? Here's the biblical principle. Uh, Solomon wrote this. And, and by the way, I have a course on finances uh, where we look at what the Bible says about stewardship, what the Bible says about saving, debt, investing, and, and so forth. The biblical principle in Ecclesiastes, for instance, says, Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will, do, you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur upon the earth. In one word, the, the, the timeless principle that's brought out here and in other places in the Bible is what we would say today is diversity. You've heard the expression, don't put all your eggs into one basket. Uh, that's a, a biblical principle. So, you know, people are wise who might, if they have reached the point where they can invest and they've earned that right to invest, uh, they might end up putting their money in stocks and mutual funds and CDs and money markets or gold or whatever they do. And there is a um, 
their their eggs are in many baskets. That that's the biblical principle. I think more and more today, the problem is is people put their hope in those things. Uh, don't put your hope in them, First Timothy 6 argues. Uh, they're temporal. They're eventually passing away. Uh, don't boast over what you've owned, the prophet Dar- Jeremiah. Don't boast in your riches. If you're going to boast about anything, he says, boast that you, they know me. Um, but I think, too, there are Christians today who are involved in investing who haven't really earned the right to invest. Uh, very often, investing is driven by things like greed. Um, and I always say to people, look, if you're getting ready to make an investment, talk, talk to your spouse and talk to other wise people. Uh, but talk to your spouse, certainly, um, because I've seen people make a lot of foolish, foolish investments when their spouse was against it. They're a helpmate. Uh, their other half. And it would be very wise to be together as a team. But don't be thinking about, you know, investing if you haven't first gotten out of debt. You haven't established uh, the principle of the ant that God gives us in Proverbs 6, an emergency saving fund and, and other things like that. That That's where you begin. People often come to me and say, well, you know, I want to start investing in the stock market. And I say, well, let's talk for just a second. Tell me about how many debts you have. Well, I've got a couple credit cards and you know, I own a, a car and, you know, we, we're, we're starting to pay off our mortgage. And I'll say, listen, the first step that you need to do is begin to get out of debt. Uh, get out of debt, pay off your credit cards, pay off your cars, uh, pay off your mortgage, and you can move towards thinking about investing. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't necessarily, if you're a young man or young woman, uh, think about, you know, retiring, though, obviously, as Christians, we never retire and your employer has put you in a situation. But uh, beyond that, you have to earn the right to invest. You have to earn the right to invest. And there are many biblical principles that guide us in that. And I cover that in our course on financial fitness, God's way and walk through it very carefully. All right, very good. Five two five one eight five nine. Actually, we've got about a minute and a half. Yeah, I meant to say common law, not civil law. Yeah, common law marriage. Ah, so I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay, terrific. And all uh, these civil marriages, they, you hear the term so much. I meant to say common law marriage. Yeah. And by the way, I have some written material on that. If that caller wants to email me, I maybe will share some of that with him. Not the most recent caller, but the one earlier who said, "Well, you know, how is it?" I've heard the argument before. How is it a guy can sleep with a hundred women? get saved, and uh, then uh, ultimately become a pastor where you've got someone else who, you know, has slept with one woman, divorced her, married again, and can't be a pastor. Well, again, a lot comes down to understanding what God says about marriage. And there are things, other things, too, that can disqualify a person from being a pastor, and even sexual things. Uh, but that's for another day. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us today. Again, go to searchthescriptures.org if you'd like more information on our Israel trip. Uh, there are some uh, time discounts. We don't handle the money. It's all handled through a Christian agency uh, with great reputation and integrity. And uh, any questions, you can call the phone numbers there at the website. Listen, I hope you have a great day. May the Lord bless you. <laughs> 